Coiny, Joseph Coyne, the man, the myth, the legend. How are you, man? Good, brother. Good, good. Yourself? Yeah, good, man. It's been um, been a while since um, since catching up in person. Um, obviously, known each other quite a long time, but now in different parts of the world. You're over in Canada at the moment, um, but based in China. Um, tell us a bit about how a boy from rural New Zealand ends up becoming the director of performance of the UFC Performance Institute. I probably butchered that title. In but Shanghai. <laughs> in Shanghai. <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's a, the correct title. Um, yeah. And uh, you, you did it right. It's, it's a mouthful. Um, yeah. Man, crazy. Eh? Like, I grew up in a place that has, like, population of 600. It was actually the first place where Captain Cook landed in New Zealand. And it's got a really yeah. long wharf, but apart from that, doesn't have much claim to fame. Um, <laughs> and then like now I'm living in like Shanghai that has like 30 million people. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's mind-blowing when you think of it in, in that type of sense. But look, I, I like uh, had a background in training obviously had a strength conditioning gym on the gold coast and, and like a clinic and uh, and um played a bit of football on the gold coast like with sal and, and i got to know you there and from there um number of things happened but i ended up getting a job in china working with the olympic committee uh and then that transformed into another job another position with the track and field federation as a coach came back to australia um did some part of my phd research actually involved ufc fighters and i was actually friends with the uh, vice president of performance at the ufc pi in vegas duncan french dr duncan french anyway they've been trying to get this uh, performance institute off the ground in shanghai there's two of them around the world uh one in vegas one in shanghai now and, and basically it, he asked me to lead lead the project there so that that's how it sort of came about um there was like a, might have been a Vegas pool party thrown in there just for a for good music. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, yeah, so basically accepted the role in March uh, 2019 and been out there, been out there since. Um, obviously, this uh, COVID-19 stuff is throwing a spanner in the works and I'm with parents-in-law in, in uh, Canada at the moment and waiting till we can get back to China. But, but yeah, the main place of residence is out in, uh, out in Shanghai. Crazy, crazy world, and not to not to also mention. I know your wife Dagan. You both in the Gold Coast, and then you both ended up China, Canada, back to Australia, back to China, now back in Canada. And you, and you got two kids as well that are young. How you how you coping in all this craziness at the moment? Yeah, man, it's uh, you you just get through day by day, right? Um, yeah. And uh, especially with the kids, like our, I was thinking about it the other day, our, our daughter, the, the, the youngest boy, he's just turned one, so we actually had a really cool first birthday for him, but the, uh, the daughter's about three and a half now, and uh, I was thinking about it, she hasn't had someone to play with for like four months now, yeah, besides her really parents or her grandparents. And, uh, it's brutal, man. Yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah. Think of it like, like that. Obviously, yeah, our kids, it's not something I've thought about, but I know that you, Sal, have always admired Coiny and his um, sort of overseas sort of travel and, and obviously oh, and all that sort of stuff. We've Couldn't do it. I guess I'm sitting here using China. Do you speak the language now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can, I'm not, oh. I wouldn't say fully fluent, but uh, I get around, I can coach in Chinese if I, if, uh, yeah. I, I can 
coach in Chinese full stop. So if, if we need oh. a coach position, um, but it's really like industry specific, you know what I mean? If we wanted to yeah. talk about the stock prices or something like that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to yeah. talk to you. But uh, if we need to order some food somewhere or, or tell somebody to do a squat or uh, tell somebody to do uh, a move on the mat, then I can do that for sure. Man, that is, that's mental. That's so impressive. Me, me and Miles, our plan obviously this year was to do a lot of travel. Um, and one of the spots we were going to head was China, um, back to Japan, because we've got a lot of good, um, cool connections there. Um, yourself in China now, um, the States. And unfortunately, it got pulled up. But give people an insight into what's actually in a performance institute. I think a lot of people probably don't understand how highly technical it is um, and what you do for these fighters. But just give us a rough rundown of the type of equipment, the apparatus, and all the training systems that you've got in, in a place like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess uh, like a broad overview uh, of of like the PI, it's it's in Shanghai. That the Shanghai one is is a little bit different to the Las Vegas one. Uh, in Las Vegas, they only service UFC rostered fighters, and then they'll have like the full array of non-technical services. So your physical therapy, your strength conditioning, your um, sports nutrition, sports dietetics, and then also sports science. So they'll service UFC rostered fighters with those with those in those four areas, and also psychology. Uh, in Shanghai, we have all those four areas and we service UFC rostered fighters as well from China and from the wider Asia region. Um, also guys in, like any UFC fighter around the world can come out to Shanghai if they want to use it. So guys from Australia can come out there, use a facility. Guys from Russia can come if it's like too far to go to Vegas. Um, thinking like that. We also have an academy there. Uh, and the academy would be the bulk, maybe 70, 80% of the work of this particular PI and this academy are all Chinese fighters that are on the verge of getting on the UFC. So they're um, like a, a couple of good fights away from being signed by McManard or, or Sean Shelby to, to actually get on the UFC roster. And so that, that's one of the primary aims of, of the PI in Shanghai is to graduate fighters from uh, underneath the level of the UFC onto the UFC to, through our system. And so, in in this in the performance institute in Shanghai, there's not just those non-technical areas: the sports nutrition, dietetics, the sports science, the uh, strength conditioning, and the physical therapy. But there's also technical training as well. So we have MMA coaches, uh, guys that have coached uh, um, like on the Ultimate Fighter and been on the Ultimate Fighter. Got Richie Walsh is one guy. He's, he's an assistant coach. He was an Australian uh, UFC fighter for a number of years. Uh, pretty much on every card that Ronda Rousey was on. That's his claim to fame. So he, he's out there uh, coaching. And so we've got these technical coaches and then everything gets integrated uh, together for the athletes in the academy. Um, and then UFC rostered fighters, if they want to come out and join into the academy training sessions, they can. Um, it's like a first-come, first-served basis. We had uh, one US lady come out for a while. We've had like the Chinese champion uh, Zhang Weili come out, Chinese UFC fighters come and basically just take part of the UFC Academy training sessions because our coaches are, are so good. Koini, what was the strategic decision behind sort of building the Performance Institute in Shanghai? Was it just because there was such an emerging sort of um, list of high 
elite athletes that were, you know, knocking on the door of the UFC? Was it just that the UFC wanted to sort of connect with that market more? Um, maybe the Asian market and Chinese obviously are a massive power in that in that space. What what was sort of the, the core reasoning behind Shanghai being that next destination? Yeah, look, definitely there was a commercial aspect. There, there was a uh, the UFC is a, is um, like obviously it's a it's a um, a company that makes money by uh, selling pay-per-views or selling advertising or selling gate tickets. And so to get into a Chinese market is, is really, really big. The, the other real major consideration was that there's not like a proven pathway to get into the UFC from China, although there's a lot of really, really good fighters in China. Yeah. So unlike, say, Brazil or United States um, or even Australia, uh, there's not like this, this real proven performance pathway to get into the UFC. So, so that was the other really big key contributing factor to, to establishing there in, in China. And, and it, was, it was chosen to be Shanghai because obviously Shanghai is the, uh, the sort of most Western city in China and, and the sort of epicenter of their trade and, and business. I was just listening to a presentation that you just gave recently um, about how you guys operate and how you guys program for your athletes, which was extremely valuable. I got a lot out of it. Um, and uh, do the athletes board there full time? So they basically wake up, they live and breathe the Performance Institute and everything is catered for them in that facility, basically. Yeah, yeah. They, they are about, uh, we call them dorms, but they're like apartments. They're apartments, they're about 400 metres walk away. Um, Athletes will sleep there. Um, but some of the visiting UFC fighters might sleep there as well if we've got room spare. Um, then they'll come in, uh, come into the, depending on what day it is, like we might, we have double days on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, single days on Wednesday, Saturday. Depending on what day it is, they'll come in in the morning, have breakfast, train, have lunch, we'll do some recovery, protein shake, that sort of thing, uh, have lunch, go back, have a nap, then come back in the afternoon for uh, the second training session repeat the cycle throughout the week. And how have you basically dealt with sort of moving from running your own practices and then managing elite athletes from world champions and Olympic athletes and um, world record holders and all sorts of things in so many different disciplines to um, sort of managing a team of technical and non-technical coaches in the, in the um, Performance Institute, you know, based around combat sports. I know that you do jujitsu yourself um, and you're into combat sports. Um, has that been something that's grown more since you've been in this role, or did you have a strong interest in sort of martial arts or combat sports prior to to getting that role as well? Yeah, yeah. So I I, I had my, my probably strongest interest was like in sprint and jump, like before actually taking this role, and, and then and strength and conditioning, um, track and field and strength and conditioning, and then. Uh, obviously, I was, I, I'd done some sort of jiu-jitsu and, and what and whatnot, but uh, not to the level. And so I've learned a lot about the fight game and, and also, but a lot of those lessons I had in my background, especially track and field and preparing athletes for track and field um, and, and even weight uh, weightlifting is one sport I've had a lot of experience with the Chinese. And there's similar there's similarities between them. It's an individual sport. You peak at a certain time. Uh, weightlifting has a weight cut involved to some degree, not to the same degree as as say MMA does, but I've learned a lot about the sport and, and what it takes to be successful in, at the highest levels in the UFC based on like how much can you comfortably weight cut, what you need to be walking around that. Because there's three things I 
I always say this, there's three things uh, for successful MMA performance that you've got to check off. First of all, you can't get injured. If you get injured, you might not be able to fight. Second of all, you've got to make weight. If you don't make weight, you might not be able to fight. Even if they do let you fight, it might be at a reduced purse or they might dock you some points on your card. Then lastly, you have to worry about performing well. But if you don't cover the number one and number two, performing well might be like of no consequence because you can't get out there and actually perform. So you've got to check off those, those first two things first before you can start worrying about performing well and making sure you're your fight camps aren't uh, fat camps or fit camps is another big one. Mm. Like you, you want to be prepared in your off camp to go into a fight camp so that you don't have to focus on non-technical fitness or uh, managing your weight. Um, you want to set these things up prior to going into your fight camp. Just to, That was one you know. big thing that I got out of your presentation and um, the fact that you sort of said like the, the pre-camp or um, off camp sort of um, conditioning and for the athletes is just as important as on on camp and your on camp is generally sort of like a six week block or six to eight week block sort of thing which I thought was really interesting because a typical sort of MMA fighter from my experience might have a minimum 12 week camp and you're right it's to get fit and to lose weight and it has no sort of real sort of focus on strategy or you know technical ability or anything like that it's purely just i need to get this weight off and i need to feel like i'm fit um so yeah that was that was that was super eye-opening it's something that especially with cells help which has just been phenomenal for us at, at combat training center is um really trying to um emphasize the staying fit all year round sort of model um and you know, cells introduce some fitness tests and it's not only great for morale and bringing the community together, but it's also good to stay on point. And for me, I've been training martial arts for over 10 years now and done a lot of competitions and things like that. I certainly never felt the motivation to stay fit all year round, but I'm definitely in that mind frame right now. But um, I can't say that you'll be um, very impressed by cells conditioning since you guys are working out in those... Um, Titans days. Right, nah, sales are killer. Don't worry. But that's a big thing, man. Like, if, say, even the sport of MMA, it's, it's, it's going into, it's becoming more and more professional, I'll say. Mm. Like, the, and this is not a knock on the sport, but you might have world champions that are still training out of the garage. Oh, yeah. Now, that, that just makes your achievements even greater, but the whole idea of making it more and more professional is that it becomes a 52 week uh, fight camp. Yeah, yeah. Um, if that makes sense. And, and of course you'll have phases where you might back off a little bit after a fight You might have two weeks off, you know what I mean? Just to recharge the batteries and, and get your goals aligned with where you need to go in the future and take stock of, of what you need to take stock of. But um, that sort of that mentality that you're, you're a full-time athlete and you want to be uh, devoting yourself to the, to your craft in some way, shape or form over a complete year uh, with specific times that you that you do deload a little bit is something that uh, a lot of MMA athletes still need to comprehend and, and take on board yeah there's a lot of um, there's a lot of responsibility on on sort of an MMA coach especially when their student will yeah. say um, I want to have a fight and 
you're right. It's not like, say, for example, so you playing for the Titans and even not even first grade, like let's just go back down to like local club level. You have a clubhouse that has generally a strength and conditioning coach or a dad that is, you know, really good at strength and conditioning that loves coming in, getting all the crew together and do, get them to do weights and programs and workouts for them. You've got a technical coach, like um, you have sort of physios in there and, you know, even at the lowest level that they seem to have a complete sort of solution for those group of athletes. Whereas you walk into any general or average MMA gym, jujitsu gym, whatever it is, it's generally, uh, you know, uh, a martial artist that has done it for a long period of time, who's passionate about it and great at a technical level, opens a gym and all they teach is kickboxing or jiu-jitsu or MMA or something like that. And if the student wants to fight, they need to go and get a, a nutritionist or a dietitian, and then they need to go and do their strength and conditioning. And then once they start getting to the higher level, and we've got a lot of high level athletes where we train, they start really needing all those heads of department to start talking to each other to ensure that the athlete is really on track and getting the most out of their training. But it seems to be a real luxury still to this day. And the UFC Performance Institutes really seem to be that first hub or that central sort of all-in-one conclusive resource and clubhouse essentially for the modern day combat athlete, which is yeah, super 100%. interesting. 100%. It's actually one of the reasons the UFCPI was born was, was uh, Forrest Griffin, who's the Vice President of Athlete Relations for the UFC now, that, that, that was his experience. Like, he was a world champion. He'd drive to his uh, Randy Couture's gym in Vegas. Then when he finished training there, he'd go and drive to his S&C guy. Then he'd go and drive to his physio. And rather than, and none of them would talk together. He would have to communicate what they were doing in each session to, to his technical coach, his S&C coach, and, and vice versa. Rather than them all being on the same page and one person managing the sort of coaching, uh, technical and non-technical services all revolving around that athlete and, and making it like an athlete-centered model. So but that, that's easily, uh, if you want to progress and optimize your training, both on like that technical and non-technical point of view, that coordination and synergy between the departments is really, really important. Um, I've seen it at the highest level. I've seen Poor examples of it at the highest level, and it definitely works better if you can get synergy between all those compartments. Because you know, like your your grandmother will say, "Oh, you might not want to be lifting, doing a heavy strength session before you've got to do a hard sparring session yeah. um, next day, or, or something like that." But the amount of times that happens because the programs aren't synced up between the SNC coach and the technical coach, it, you'd, you'd be astounded. Yeah, man, I, I was really curious, especially when. Um I know all of your backgrounds from going from Olympic level athletes and weightlifting to sprinting to obviously now UFC champions to the very best football players in the world, like a Sonny Bill Williams, in terms of the psychology behind each one of those athletes that are at the very top, because I know you've worked with all the best in the world, but also how different your modeling has had to be in terms of prescribing exercise, injury prevention, performance, nutrition. Has it just completely done a 180 because you worked with so many different athletes or do all the same principles? 
theoretically apply and then you tweak the principles that you set up through your systems yeah look i'd say the general principles apply so I, I, look i'd say the same principles still generally apply um you can probably get a bit more finer detailed uh at the at the sticky end in terms of like working it at the top allows you to get yeah, more yeah, finer detailed and you can devote more time more resources to, to what you need to accomplish um and I'd actually say that if, if you ask me to help like a guy who wants to go from like third in the world to first in the world, that's my forte. But if you ask me to help a guy who's like a recreational uh, jujitsu player on the Gold Coast and wants to go to nationals, I'd be like, oh, where do I start here? Um, so there, there's, there's, there's differences to, to it and also appreciating things like work-life balance, um, having kids. Like obviously, Sal, you can... You can uh, speak to the impact that having kids might have on your training and how you've got a work lifestyle around that and things you can devote and can't devote to your training and resources, all those types of things that they matter a lot and, and then having an appreciation of those makes a difference. But what is the oh, difference what is the difference between someone wanting to go from third to first, in your opinion? In the world? Yeah. yeah it's like specific targeting of their weaknesses. Mm -hmm. to improve them to a minimum standard where they're not going to be exploited. Yeah. First of all, you've got to know the sport and know how to target those weaknesses. Um, and then once you've got that, you also have to make sure that you don't detract from their strengths that they're really good at. So th there's, there's numerous things. Like I, I can give you a long jump example, a specific long jump example with a guy. Um, the, the average amount of time on, in the last step on the board for a long jump is about uh, 130 milliseconds. This guy, his jumps had no trajectory. They were really low trajectory, so he was still jumping over eight metres. He was leading the Diamond League series in 2016, but his uh, contact time on the board was like 100 milliseconds to 110 milliseconds. So he wasn't staying that fraction of a section long enough, second long enough on the board to actually generate the trajectory to go further. Um, and we, we did that through video analysis and then incorporated drills and things like that about how you change these things and, and then monitor that over time with, uh, with like high-speed video analysis and, and uh, timestamps and so on on the board. And then like that type of stuff is, is the detail you need to get to. You need to work in milliseconds. You need to work in, uh, in uh, uh, finer units to say, hey, what are the things that influence performance? Uh, where are you poor at? How do we bring that up to minimum standard while also not detracting from your strengths? What are you, are you seeing anything that is missing in combat athletes? Um, just as an athlete as a whole, is it, are you noticing that the minimum standard is lower in strength, power, speed, flexibility? Mm, I, I would say that there's a, there's, if, if I could prioritize combat sports, I'd probably say you want to be fit, you want to prioritise being fit more than you want to prioritise being strong or powerful, especially for three five-minute rounds, which is like, when you think about it energetically, that's like running three 1,500 metres back-to-back with a one-minute rest, yeah. Yeah. essentially. It, it's, yeah. that, that's tough it's to brutal. do. Now, yeah. it won't be quite at, like, full-out pace, but that, that's the similar time domains. Mm. Um, so then it's, a, it's understanding the sport and what needs to be prioritised. Then, then you've got to influence, like, what type of style are they? Are they a wrestler or a striker? Do they need to be more explosive as a striker or do they need to be stronger as a wrestler to control people on the ground, those types of things. So those things play, play into it. Um, but definitely if, if you don't have a technical basis, you want to work on getting the technical skills 
compass first. You can be the strongest, most powerful human in the world. But uh, on your first day in a jiu-jitsu class, a, uh, a guy that's 30 kgs lighter than you that won't bench press half what you could bench press or jump half as high as what you could will tie into knots. Um, so you have to have those technical skills first and foremost before you uh, start focusing on the non-technical skills. Coiny, how much of an influence do they play there at the Institute on technical skills? Um, obviously, I saw in your presentation that there are certainly uh, sessions for technical skills and there was MMA in there. There was, um, you know, jiu-jitsu, then there was sort of uh, a wrestling class. Um, so, you know, a whole combination of things. Um, do, are the coaches very sort of strong on the athletes showing up for those classes? Um, because, you know, sometimes in Australia, you might see that a lot of sort of maybe the top MMA guys or jiu-jitsu guys are just not even really interested in doing technical skills anymore. They think that they've sort of gotten to the level where they don't need to do that and they always are interested in his live sort of training, um, but um, they start missing out on refining their technical skills. Mm. So, yeah, look, there's, I guess there's a couple of components there. One is for, for the UFC Academy, all those sessions are compulsory. Yeah. Um, sick or something like that. If you're a UFC rostered athlete and you're joining in, you can pick and choose which sessions you want to come to. But uh, like I'll strongly recommend every UFC rostered athlete comes in there if they're going to train with us, that they fit into the system when they're there, unless they've got a fight coming up or something like that. Um, in terms of those sessions, they, they will have different weightings for technical and tactical emphases. So some might be, e.g., how you do this technique. The other will be, when do you apply this technique in competition? They'll also have different ratios of live work to drilling work. So some, some sessions will have more live goes, like specific sparring or something like that, where you start in a, a position, maybe someone has your back and you've got to get out of it, and then you reset when you get out. Or you keep going, potentially, depending on what's going on. Um, so, so there's different ratios throughout. And normally in off-camp, there will be a more a lower live to drilling ratio. And as you progress into, like that'll be your general preparation, you progress into a specific preparation, that ratio will increase to a increased live to drilling ratio. And then uh, it, it'll maintain or even go even higher during fight camp. And fight camp is where you'll really be focusing on say, your tactical uh, development, e.g. what you do in competition versus your off camp might still be a little bit more focused on your technical, how you perform the technique uh, first and foremost. And with touchings on when you apply, and and definitely if you if you've got all the technical skills, um, you you might not need uh, more technical refinement, but you you might want to keep refining your tactical yeah. uh, use of those skills in competition. So when do you do um, like an MMA? you wouldn't want to go for an armbar, you know what I mean, if yeah. you're on top, because then you might give up position and the person can start punching you if you're going to get it, or you're really good at doing armbars, like Damien Meyer, for instance, or something along those lines. So th those type of considerations come into play. And, and, and for guys that have all the skills, then the non-technical training becomes an even bigger part of the development because now you're looking, okay, you've got the skills, you've got most of the tactical awareness, we can work on the tactical awareness. We also want to bring up any weak areas in your non-technical uh, development, whether it's, uh, how you do your weight cut, whether it's your strength and power levels, whether it's your endurance levels, whether it's your joint range of motion that a physical therapist might look at, whether it's your psychology. That, that, that's when, once you've got the skills, that's when the non-technical stuff really, really starts to become important. Mm -hmm. 
it's so interesting and we've obviously just lost Sally. He'll come back in soon. Um, but um, something that Sally and I talk about all the time is sort of uh, mindset and the, the mindset that you need to be at the top. And Sally and I have a very strong work ethic when it comes to running these businesses and things like that. But I can tell you for sure that I would never be a world champion athlete because I'm not prepared to put in the work um, and, and make those sacrifices. Um, difference goes for obviously running the businesses and there's similar aspects there. Um, but anytime someone says to me that they want to be a world champion, I start expecting um, a lot of them. Do you see that there can be a work-life balance if you want to be a world champion or does that sort of balance really start to sort of tip on the work side more so than anything? What do you see there in terms of the work that needs to go in to be a world champion? Here's the thing, right? Any PE teacher or track and field coach will be able to tell you this. Like a PE teacher, some kids are just naturally better than other kids. And other kids, no matter what you do, you could put in 10,000 hours of work into other kids to be a, a golfer or a, a track and field athlete. They won't be world class. They won't be a world champion. It's just, they just don't have the genetic components to, to be able to do that. It's a, it's a reality that maybe other sports don't like to be across. But my moral of the story there is you can be a world champion depending on the level of competition without working um, as hard as somebody, somebody else in that same sport. Um, if you are extremely talented, uh, you, you can be a world champion. Um, but if the level of competition is close to you and also works extremely hard, then you've got to work extremely hard as well. And, but, and not just hard, but smart. So, for instance, it's, it's common in uh, MMA for people to work too hard and turn everything into a hard flogging session where you could have sort of an undulation or changing intensities in your session that might benefit you more than just going... Uh, balls to wall every session, which to be fair, will give you some mental benefits and will toughen you up, but it might also degrade your physical potential and degrade your ability to, to have career longevity in the sport. So there, there's considerations like that as well. I find it so fascinating. When we um, self started training with us at the gym um, prior to it becoming combat training center, um, we were purely a, a, um, a striking jiu-jitsu um, MMA-based gym. Um, and when we had the opportunity to bring the Combat Training Center together, I know that Cell was chomping at the bits to bring all of these sort of um, departments together from sort of, you know, um, physiotherapy, massage um, therapy, um, having all of those health services, as well as the strength and conditioning component and all of these sorts of things. And so that obviously came from your background being in professional sports and then obviously seeing an opportunity, seeing things like the UFC PI um, and then also understanding that there really isn't any gyms around that are providing those sorts of services. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, more than anything, I always thought that similar to what Pointy said, that if um, I may not be the most talented, I may not be the most technical, but if I'm fitter and stronger than you, well, I've got an advantage that I can control in that aspect. And a lot of people just leave that to chance. But, man, if someone, if someone can pin you down and hold you down, well, they win the fight. Regardless whether they're, whether you're a better fighter, whether you're a better striker, whether you may be more technical, if someone can physically dominate you in some way, well, 
they kind of stand stand to gain the upper hand. And within, I guess, coming from a football background, that was kind of almost everything. Like it was like you had to run faster, hit harder and be Coiny, one thing that I um, always struggled with um, as a coach, and it was purely an ego thing, was that everyone, as soon as they get to a certain level, felt that, that they needed to travel overseas to get the type of training that they needed to become uh, or to be, com become competitive at the highest level. Um, it was always a motivation for us to create a facility that provided everything that people would actually come to us to get the training that they needed. And they felt confident and comfortable that they would be getting what they need to, to, to compete at the highest level. And then we started to see things like, you know, obviously when the UFC Performance Institute in Shanghai started to open, you, it was a juggernaut. It's just like this incredible facility that's got everything. What does that mean for, I think it's great in terms of the evolution of, um, you know, where the sport's going and what's expected um, of clubs and, and services to that level. What is it sort of, what, what do you see happening to the landscape? You know, obviously you've trained in local jiu-jitsu gyms here on the Gold Coast and things like that. What do you see happening in terms of that landscape? And is more going to be expected of local gyms to provide more services and be a more complete solution? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, and if not being able to provide the services, having, having partners that, ancillary partners that, that work in with them and communicate with them regularly so like you don't have this siloed approach like how I mentioned the forest before um, so your, your physio is talking to the coach of the gym on, on a regular basis and, and is communicating your S&C coach is talking to the coach of the gym and, and, uh, and are both communicating so definitely that, that, that should become expected in martial arts and, and uh, yeah just getting on that coaching thing like I'm a big believer in, in athletes should, there's a great value to having a coach that you've stuck with for a long time because that coach knows you um, and also knows your mannerisms, how you respond to training. And that can take years and years of experience to actually develop. So even if you do go overseas to, uh, to train with some other gym for a little while or, uh, or uh, work with, with some other coach to get some other technical or tactical awareness, there's so much value in, in coming back and, and um, or maintaining a relationship with the original coaches, the coaches that have been around you, just because they will be able to read like the wider organism, if, if it were, of you as an athlete, and then put in things that they know you're weak at from the other coaches and see what they're doing and make it more of a collaborative effort. And that's, it's a hard thing for coaches because it's a, there's an ego involved. And if you're, if you're not with me, you're with them vice versa, but at the end of the day, if it rolls around the athlete, then uh, uh, you, you should have, be able to rein in that ego and, and adjust it to, to help the athlete get better. That, that's my view on it too. But definitely in regards to the gym, it's complete servicing. And if you're not, uh, if not complete servicing, there's ancillary partners that, that help you out while you're there. Yeah. Sorry, Sally, we lost you there, bro. No, all good, man. My internet's, it's, I, we're in the same office, so I don't know why mine's not shit and, and yours, yours is, yours is sweet. But, um, man, what are you, what are you doing yourself now, Courtney, to stay fit? I remember back in the day, you were doing everything from powerlifting to gymnastics to 
yoga to jiu-jitsu, you you still maintaining that regime or is life a lot harder with the two kids now? No, yeah, life's harder. Life's harder for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I do. Basically, I do three days a week of some gymnastics work. And then uh, since I've been here and I haven't been doing any, haven't been able to do any jiu-jitsu, I've been doing like three energy system sessions, like some uh, CrossFit style uh, uh, Metcons where I might do an 800, 400, 200 repeat, uh, running with some like burpees in between each or double unders or something like that in between each. Yeah, um, yeah that, that, that's, that's been my routine lately. And uh, yeah. sort of, one day of gymnastic stuff, one day of Metcon, metabolic conditioning, and, and just go back and forth uh, for yeah. five or six days of the week. I know that um, obviously you're a big proponent in gymnastics, and then um, seeing someone like the GSP, who's from Canada, um, utilizing it so much within their training. What is it about the gymnastics format that you think could translate so well across to mixed martial arts? Yeah, look, so there's is basically uh, the, the grandfather of SNC is weightlifting, right? Olympic weightlifting. The grandmother is gymnastics. And then you've probably got a, a, a grand uncle, which is martial arts for modern day SNC. Um, and they share a lot of commonalities. Definitely for gymnastics, the body control um, and the learning how to apply force with just your body weight as resistance is, is massive for martial arts because you don't. Uh, um, run around with, or you don't apply force to things that are heavier than your own weight, essentially in mixed martial arts, like you're in a weight class sport. So that's, that consideration is a big one. And, and maximum strength will have a, a bigger play to a, a bigger part to play in mixed martial arts than say something like sprinting or, uh, or long jump. But um, there's still the gymnastics, the body control, the awareness in space, the ability to roll, all those sorts of things, the ability to, move your body in space, the ability to generate force without using your arms and legs, which is a big part of jiu-jitsu, right? Mm. A lot of line drills and jiu-jitsu, all those things have synergy with gymnastics and the sort of trunk conditioning you might do in gymnastics. Um, so, so, yeah, there's a massive, massive role that applied gymnastics can have with, uh, with jiu-jitsu and with MMA. Koenig, tell us something that we don't know. I mean... I know this is broad and it's, and it's meant to be. You're at the pinnacle right now. You're sitting, you know, in the UFC Institute in Shanghai. You're seeing the top athletes in the world. A lot of the people listening to this right now are, you know, um, combat athlete enthusiasts or athletes and they're trying to get to the UFC. What is it that they should be doing? What is the secret of all of this that, you know, you can tell us being where you are? Is it, do we need to focus on our mindset? Are there tricks to that? Do we need to focus on, you know, just that holistic approach to everything that you were thinking of? Or is there something else that you can tell us that we're just really missing? No, no, definitely. Definitely. There are no secrets, right? But I would say you have to have the package of technical and non-technical uh, put together. If you want to be a pro fighter, there's also a, a tremendous amount of it that goes into picking the right fights for you um, according to your development and also getting in front of matchmakers who will make decisions on whether or not you're signed on a roster or not signed on a roster or given a certain fight or not given a certain fight. Um, and, and that sort of uh, guiding of your career is, 
it really needs to be done by by a, either a good agent or, or a guy that's been there and knows the people that are involved in those those decisions and they make such a difference in terms of like um, how are you getting on the UFC roster how is Mick Maynard or Sean Shelby or Dana White actually seeing your fights mm-hmm. you got to start thinking working back if I want to get on the UFC roster first of all those guys have to see my fights and I've got to perform well on them and then you've got to say, how is that going to happen? How am I going to put that in place so that actually happens? So, Isn't this an interesting sort of dichotomy? Because so many fighters right now are almost, they're seeing people who are entertainers and jesters and, you know, these guys who have, and girls who have big followings or they run their mouth to get some attention and they get that attention. And like you said, UFC is an entertainment business probably first and foremost. And they want eyes and attention on their fights. Obviously, they want the athlete to be at a high level and to be able to handle themselves. And if they're getting a lot of attention, they probably want them to get to the top. So a lot of athletes I'm seeing right now are really struggling with that balance of how far do I go out of my own skin, create a persona, try and you know, um, strategize in terms of my marketing, which agent do I go and connect with? Because every agent is telling these fighters that they're going to give them, you know, the world. Um, but then you also see a handful of agents who are deeply connected with, you know, guys like Nick Maynard and all the matchmakers and things like that. Do you go and try and approach them and be a small fish in a big pond now? There's just so many things um, to sort of consider, would you sort of tell that athlete, hey, just pull it back. Remember, you need to be performing at your best. So focus on sort of, you know, your, your health and performance. And, you know, if you find the right agent, they should be guiding you, um, you know, with sort of no friction. Like you, you, it should be sort of like a seamless sort of partnership there. Is that, is that kind of what the modern athlete needs to do right now? Yeah, sure. It matters far more that you're winning fights well um, and potentially explosively than what your social media uh, following is like or, uh, or, or even who, who your agent is. But those things can, especially the guiding of the career, not, not so much the persona. If you're not on the UFC, the persona doesn't really matter that much. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, once you, even when you're on the, on the UFC, it might not really matter until you're ranked, uh, a ranked fighter. Like, Case in point, Colby Covington. Yeah. Um, it, you know, once he uh, he was always a, a brilliant fighter, but then but wasn't getting recognition when he was close to the rankings in the rankings. But then when he started turning it on, that's when he started getting bigger and bigger fights. So th- that stuff is like that's at the tip of the iceberg. If you don't want to be focusing on that at the moment, just focus on things you can control, win your fights, uh, prepare well and uh, make sure you've got some good voices sort of guiding uh, your career and who you're, who you're picking for fights and, and so on, for sure. That would be my sort of recommendations from, from, from the inside looking out. Yeah. yeah. And I know, um, obviously, you mentioned at the very start, weight cutting being a huge, huge aspect of the sport, which in turn makes nutrition a massive aspect of the sport. And... You see a lot of guys doing it really well. You see a lot of guys doing it really poorly and everywhere in between. Is there anything that you've picked up during your time looking after these tremendous athletes that you know, first and foremost, people should be doing with their nutrition? Um, Or uh, is there something that you notice all the time is really missing from people's nutrition in, in combat sports? 
Yeah, look, look, I would say, again, see a person that, that's qualified, um, like uh, fight dietitian Jordan. He, he's a guy that I've had a bit to do with around the traps. He's come out to a lot of UFC events I've been at and uh, um, does integrates with us really well. But it's like, this is how you need to maintain your body weight in a certain range above your weight class. So if I'm going to fight at 77 kgs, I'm probably going to work around at like 90 kgs, right? Give or take. If I'm walking around at 96 kgs or 98 kgs, that percentage is too high uh, for me for me to take a fight unless I've got to really work to, to get down. So there's a walk around percentage you want to get to and stay at for a certain period of time so it becomes natural for you. Maybe it's 12 to 18 months that you need to stay at this weight range um, where you don't go above it. And then when you lose weight, one of the things that helps make the weight cut much easier is... Uh, taking away carbohydrate and taking away salt. Those are, those are two, and also taking away bulk in your stomach, so fiber in your stomach helps make your weight cut easier. You'll, you'll shed weight just by reducing carbohydrates, reducing salt, and reducing the, the fibrous bulk in your stomach. So if you're at a certain weight uh, and you're not having carbs, you're not having fiber, and you're not having salt, then you won't have much room to move in the, in the last week where you need to cut your weight. Um, so in, anytime we're looking at an athlete's weight, we, we need to know what, what is their overall diet like. Does it have an adequate amount of carbohydrate in it to fuel their training and also to give us a buffer to take stuff away when we need to take stuff away in the weight cut week? Um, the other thing is being heat acclimated. So the, to, to lose the weight, I, I mentioned the, the carbohydrate, the fiber, the, and the stomach, the bulk in the stomach and the salt. To lose the weight, you also sweat, right? Um, you get rid of water. So you can get better at sweating, and it's uh, just another thing to train. Um, and, and we have we have like a heat acclimation protocol where people go into saunas and basically get used to being in a sauna. So you get better at sweating, and then you also get better at mentally handling the process, being able to like be in a hot environment for long periods of time. So you need to train this over time and uh, and be comfortable in those environments. And those are the things that I'd say are really big aspects to MMA performance is, is one, having uh, adequate nutrition where you have those those three things that will give you a buffer so you can take them out of your diet to lose weight really rapidly for a weight cut. And two, being comfortable sweating for long periods and being better at sweating to keep the weight off more efficiently. Such great advice. Perfect. It's, I know that um, I, I personally am a, don't really like weight cuts, obviously, because it's it, it, it can be it can be super unhealthy. But what what's your thoughts on it? Do you think like the UFC should be adopting like a model of a one FC where it gets people closing fight, fighter to their natural weight, or do you think it's just part of the sport? It's always going to be part of the sport. People should be walking around lighter, closer to their weight to allow them to make that cut? Uh, well, I'm pretty pragmatic. If you set a weight cut, uh, like a weight limit lighter, the people will just find a way of gaming the system. Mm. Uh, I think there just needs to be more education and better practices around that. Some people are better at weight cutting than others, um, naturally, and also through applied practice. Um, like in terms of like making sure those carbohydrate bulk in the stomach, um, salt, sweating, those types of things. Those are your your your, your big things for it. Um, 
and then look, there, there's issues with one's uh, weight cutting policy in terms of how they do USGs and, and which is the marker of dehydration and so on. But if, if you do it uh, well with, with a good dietitian, it shouldn't be an unsafe process. It should be a very safe process. Um, and, and it's around that education and doing it correctly. And that's actually one of the jobs of the, of the PI that uh, we're, we're trying to get out there is, is educate the wider MMA community about how to do it the most efficient way in a safe manner without endangering the, the lives of your athletes. Because that's the thing. For sure, man. Oh, I was just going to say, do you, where do you guys give that information? Is it only internally with the UFC athletes and the academy that you're referring to, or is it available to the wider public that's looking to become a mixed martial artist at a professional level? Yeah, so there will be a journal released from the UFC in the very near future, from the UFC PI in the very near future. Um, and this is basically a cross-sectional analysis of the UFC athletes uh, and across all the weight classes. This journal will also have information around how you cut weight properly. What are the considerations? For instance, males might cut weight better than females. What happens if a female has their menstrual cycle on the weight cut week? Mm. That's going to be an issue. How do you deal with those things? Uh, and so on. So this journal will have touches of that. Then in the future, another one of the big plans for the performance institute is to have a certification process. So coaches can enroll in this, whether a coach or a nutritionist, they can enroll in the certification. They can uh, learn how we do it, how we do it most efficiently, and, and then basically say, I'm doing the best practice in the world right now. Um, because these things aren't out just yet, I'd recommend people check out Read Real, who's our sports uh, dietitian at the Shanghai PI. Uh, he's basically, he did his PhD on weight cutting in combat sports. If there's a paper, a research paper written about weight cutting uh, around the world, totally likely either authored it as the first author or is one of the authors on it. So um, you, you'll find his papers on the internet. Research Gate is one website where you can find him, but he's the sort of go-to scientific source uh, that we have and, and a lot of our work's based on. Coiny, do you reckon, obviously, you know, I know you've got to go, but do you, one question I want to ask is, do you reckon you guys have it locked down? Do you think that, you know, the, the protocols that you have right now are, are completely the best way to do things, or are you still just figuring things out as you go? Yeah, no, we're, so we're, we're a system, man. We, we have what we consider best practice, yeah. but we're not... Uh, uh, we're, and so I'd say that we, we, we do a really good job. We're continually monitoring how we can improve these systems uh, at a regular basis and updating them and refining them to make sure we're, we're constantly staying at that, uh, at that best practice level. Because what might be best practice in 2020, come 2022 with extra knowledge or something like that, might not be the same. So these things definitely evolve. And, and even just having an a academy of full-time athletes and being able to sort of run interventions on them and figure out what's working when athletes are training and doing the technical training and non-technical training at the same time, how to put pieces together, what's the safest way, what's the best way. Uh, that makes, that's been a really big learning curve, not just for myself, but the, the UFC PI as a whole, uh, because now we've got, we've got this full-time athlete uh, cohort that we can work with and, and figure stuff out on so yeah look it's you're always improving 
but uh, at the moment I'd say we're, we're, we've got a world leading best practice, um, but that's not to say it might not change in one year, six months, three months. For sure. Uh, there's a, there's a, it's a constant process. Now I know that you've got to go and tend on a world champion UFC fighter now and work on how they can be training. Um, so we don't want to hold you for too long, but we so appreciate your time. Um, and we really look forward to working with you more in the future. Um, and I know Excel's excited about that. You guys have been mates for a long, long time. Um, if there's one thing that you could leave us with, um, whether it's a piece of wisdom, a quote, a concept you live by, um, you know, something that you tell your world champion athlete before they go into battle or to do that, you know, um, you know, long jump or whatever it is, I would love for you to leave us with um, a piece of a piece of wisdom. Man, I, yeah, I, I don't have any quirky one-liners or anything like that, but uh, I, I do repeat it this pretty often. It's like, what would my grandmother say? My grandmother said you need to get faster, and then some guy told you, oh, you should squat more to get faster. Your grandma might say, how about just running faster? Or if, if someone's, if, if you want to get a, you say, ah, oh, I want to uh, um, improve my punching power, power. And then a physio, you might get a physio say, ah, oh, your shoulder needs more range of motion. Um, your grandmother might say, oh, how about you just practice punching a bit more? Um, so that type of logical thinking, always starting at the most logical spot to start with is, is a big sort of line of thinking. And that's what I recommend. And, Man, I, I can't wait to actually get back to the Gold Coast to check out uh, check out your centre and uh, the combat training facility and see what's going on. I see it going down on uh, social media and looks really cool. It really does. I'm sure you boys are doing a great job there. Oh, thanks, man. Likewise, yeah, we just um, yeah. Obviously, the world got turned on its head, but some positives have come out of it. Um, I'm sure, like you guys, it sucks not being able to be in your gym but at the same time you've probably refined a whole lot of systems and processes that um were on the back burner because everyone's go 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 but now you've got a bit of time you'll probably bring those athletes back in there and have some crazy crazy um shit to deliver that um will take everything to, ne to the next level so yeah man I, i'm looking forward to the world opening back up and us getting over to china and checking out um, like the mecca of what combat sports is in terms of training and education. It'll be, it'll be cool. Yeah, man. Thanks so much, Tony. Yeah. Appreciate it, brother. Yeah, yeah. Th thanks for having me on, boys. Appreciate it. Right. We'll chat soon. All right. Yeah.